Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke with Deepak Chopra and it was so loaded with information that we are doing it over two weeks. The first 45-50 minutes that you'll be listening today talks about some cosmological, physical, spiritual principles and the second part is built around a meditation exercise which you're going to love. It's also available on YouTube, that meditation, so get on there and post it about a bit. Thanks for all your uh, comments on Damien Bradfield's excellent interview last week. Some people were driven to comment, and here's what some of those people said, just using typing really. James Gage said, technology should be only used to benefit humanity. Anything other than anything that has a negative effect should be destroyed. James, I like your style. So like, yeah, nuclear reactors, weapons, though they could benefit you. I suppose, James, what we're, given that your name is James Gage, we would have to gauge who benefits. That's the thing, isn't it? It's difficult, isn't it? Because in post-structural philosophy, there are no universals, there's no good and bad. I mean, it's tricky, really. That's not something I necessarily agree with. Capadonna, she says, I spent 14 hours on my phone the other day. I need to break free. Yeah, it's terrible. But don't beat yourself up for the amount of time when you're using maps. Meditation apps, or maybe even once in a while watching a little film. I saw that three hours every day and thought, come on, most of that was using a map. Bit of Game of Thrones, don't do me for it. Dallas Boring News. Tech companies have more power than government. Ironically, Facebook, Amazon and Google are all government intertwined. It's time to tear down the government. Dallas Boring News, you're just proposing a revolution, which I, I can only agree with. I can only agree with it. It's time to tear down the government. but. Let's have a few ideas about how to replace it in smaller, decentralised, democratic communities based on equality, kindness and love. But it's going to be tricky, but it will be better than what we've got now. Kindred spirit. People have begun to realise that the demand for convenience is what's having the biggest negative impact on the state of the planet. Really, a problem seems to be overlooked. You're right, you know, we've got to let go of our need for convenience. Gandhi said it in that speech I'm always banging on about. Got to let go of our trinkets, don't be saucy, and we've got to get let go of our needs for convenience. Because, like, really, are you willing to let go of, say, Amazon or or watching a nice bit of Game of Thrones or cozy somewhere, or drinking this nice kombucha, or well, luxury man and comfort—they've got us by the balls. Mantis age. People will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. And that's from a Mr. Aldous Huxley, 1894-1963. Good old Aldous Huxley, one of the great innovative thinkers of the last century. Or in fact, the century. No, yeah, last century, yeah. Alright, well, we've really had a good look at some facts there and some opinions, and we've really blurred the line between the two. So, there's some stuff that my producer Jenny has written. This is a special two-part series with Deepak. In this week's episode, we chat about the nature of consciousness. We did chat about that. Deepak unloaded his extensive knowledge on the cosmos, what it means to be embodied, what a belief in God is or means, and some of the reasons why people suffer from existential crisis. What I will say is chatting to Deepak, that man has got an incredible base of knowledge. He's been around the greats. He embodies and conveys an incredible amount of knowledge. There's a lovely bit where he breaks down ontology and epistemology. There's some lovely bits on cosmology, some jokes about his arguments with uh, very popular and rather wonderful 
atheists, although I know Brian Cox wouldn't call himself an atheist, but certainly non-theological thinkers such as Brian Cox, less um, bonhamous regards for Richard Dawkins, for whom the, for the Professor Dawkins and Dr. Deepak have had some pretty vitriolic exchanges, it seems, but um, Richard Dawkins is coming on under the skin pretty soon, along with Ricky Gervais, not at the same time, it's just I'm mentioning them as, like, you know, in the great atheist camp. So part two next week, that's about, that's about meditation and spirituality and how it can have a practical impact on your life and the world. So that's next week's one. So, but you're going to love this podcast. You're going to love next week's one. Thanks for subscribing to Luminary. Thanks for supporting me. Thanks for staying with me. Remember, check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos. And remember to tell me what it is you want to see because we're developing it and evolving it. Remember to subscribe to my mailing list and just casually ask for help and cause a mental breakdown in one of the people that has to respond to those emails. There's new videos every single week on YouTube about well-being, being, spirituality, self-care, and even clips from this podcast. Check out this week's Learn to Meditate, Guided Meditation with Deepak, which is in part two. That's already up on YouTube, so you can learn it. We check the comments on each video. I can't promise to respond to them all, but by God, I promise I'll read them. So tell me what you'd like to see more of. Sign up to the mailing list on russellbrand.com. You'll get some lovely content and you'll receive information about these new esoteric happenings and occurrences and movements that I'm involved with your love. If you want to get in touch on social media, it's uh, at Rusty Rockets, hashtag under the skin, or Instagram at Russell Brand. But now, let's glide gently into this episode of Under the Skin with the wonderful, informative, great teacher, Deepak Chopra. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Deepak Chopra, thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me. Thank you for coming here and joining me in this retreat. Yes, we're on a silent retreat. Yeah, well, we're breaking the silence right now. The first thing we've done is transgressed the rules. That's okay. Once in a while, rules are meant to be broken. And in fact, what may seem like rules may not be objectively rules at all, but just a subjective pattern due to the limitations of our human experience. Absolutely. Every experience has limitations. Every experience is finite. It arises and disappears as soon as it arises. I've only been here for 45 minutes, and when you gave me a relatively succinct uh, precy of your biography and what seemed to me like a history of your understanding of consciousness, how consciousness intersects with scientific understanding in the fields of cosmology and physics and biochemistry and your own spiritual beliefs and the parallels that are found there. It was incredibly compelling and powerful and it seems to me that much of your work, even from the point when you first became notorious, has been about the relationship between what can be physically proven and what that may imply in realms less easy to quantify and analyse. Is that a fair understanding of your work and a fair understanding of the field of, hmm, I don't know, 
spirituality more broadly? Yes, it's been a journey though. It's been uh, since uh, I left medical school and finished my training in internal medicine and endocrinology and neuroendocrinology that I became interested in why I could have two patients who had the same illness, saw the same physician, received the same treatment, but had different outcomes. And so at that moment, I became interested in how emotions and what we call the mind experiences our biology. Uh, if one day I actually gave a, a patient a wrong diagnosis, uh, I was looking at the wrong chart, and I told the patient, Mrs. Smith, you might have cancer. And as soon as I uttered those words, I saw how his face, his facial expression changed. And I could see his blood pressure going up and his heart rate speeding up. And I, in my mind, could imagine his platelets getting sticky and his immune system getting compromised. And then two minutes later, I realized I was reading the wrong chart and I apologized to him. And suddenly he was like a fresh blooming flower again. And all I had said was two sentences. So I knew that uh, there was no separation between mind and body. That just like we say mass energy, space time, um, we should be saying body mind as the same phrase. There's no difference. The body is the objective experience of consciousness and the mind is the subjective experience of consciousness. But they're all but they're both the same thing. Yes, in a way there's no distinct line between them. There is no point where you'd say, here is the border between mind and body. Right. Very. So if I ask you to lift up your hand, how do you do that? It starts with an intention which is ephemeral, evanescent, transient, it's just a flicker of a thought. And this happens. If these two are separate things, then how does one interface with the other without violating the laws of conservation of energy? There's, they have to be made of the same stuff. The thought and this have to be made up of the same stuff, this activity or that activity, or this activity, has to be made of the same stuff. This whole activity has to be made of the same stuff. It turns out that this stuff is actually non-stuff. It's not matter. It's not energy. What is it? What's a thought, if not a modified form of consciousness? And the body as a perceptual experience is also a modified form of consciousness. They're the same thing. And in fact, the universe is also the same thing, and not a thing at all. Deepak, why do you think that there is such a vitriol and uh, aggressive criticism leveled at you, say from, you know, like, on, I've had a, done a podcast with Sam Harris, who, like, I enjoyed very much, and Brian Cox, who I like very much. Why do you think there is um, such a suspicion and criticism uh, around uh when, when we start to talk about spirituality in relationship to science, I mean, I know what their side of the argument is. Their side of the argument is this is conjecture, this stuff's unproven, woo-woo, those kind of words get banded around. But the emotional quality of what they're saying is sort of pretty potent sometimes. 
it threatens the current paradigm, uh, including the scientific paradigm. See, all systems of thought are based on certain assumptions. And science starts with an assumption. We have to start somewhere. And the scientific method starts with the assumption that matter, or what we call physical reality, is fundamental. That matter is the ontological primitive of all existence. All of science is based on that presumption. But the fact is, if you ask scientists today, is there a substance called matter? Has anyone ever actually documented the existence of an inert substance that we can call matter? Turns out no one has ever proved the existence of anything called matter. Matter is particles, and particles are waves that, uh, until the moment of measurement, only exist as possibilities in mathematical space. But all of science, and science is the most successful adventure we have ever taken as human beings. You wouldn't be here if you had not thrown on a jet plane. Uh, people are watching or listening to this podcast because of the scientific technology we've created. Science also is an activity in consciousness. Experiments are designed in consciousness. Theories are construed or conceived in consciousness. Observations are made in consciousness. So science assumes the existence of consciousness, also assumes that matter is, the, is what gives rise to consciousness, but is unable to prove it. This is called the hard problem of consciousness. And yet every scientific discovery, including Nobel Prizes, are given to people who find some little aspect that explains how matter behaves, uh, this particle, or Higgs boson, or whatever. These are human constructs for modes, for modes of knowing and experience in our consciousness. If you use the word, instead of using the word spirituality, just use the word consciousness. Then you have a little entry into this world. Otherwise, you don't even have a chance of getting tenure or getting a promotion or you risk losing your job. In physics, there's a phrase, shut up and calculate. Don't ask deep questions. And as long as you shut up and calculate and your calculations are verified by experiment, then you have a career. Otherwise, you don't have a career. So the threat to scientists is basically a threat to their whole system of thought where scientists presume, less and less though now, that the scientific method is giving them a clue to the mystery of existence. But it's not. All that science does is take a narrow band of perceptual activity, human perceptual activity, interpret it as force fields, atoms, particles, and molecules, and then explain existence by that. But the mystery of existence is much deeper. You know, it's the real mystery of existence, not existence, but the awareness of existence. If you weren't aware of existence, then for practical purposes, there isn't existence, right? So awareness of existence and existence go together. So uh, however deep, thorough, brilliant, intricate, and informative any field of scientific study is, it necessarily takes place within the limitations of our biological instruments and 
passes through and intersects with consciousness itself. So anything beyond that. True, but it also also presumes that the perceptual experience that you're having as a human being is all there is to reality. Okay. What does the world look like to a chameleon whose eyeballs swivel on two different axes? I can't even remotely imagine that. What does the world look like or experience? What does the world experience to a snake that navigates through the experience of infrared? A bat that knows the world through the echo of ultrasound? A butterfly that has eyes that have 30 to 50,000 lenses that move like a kaleidoscope? that tastes the world through its legs, smells the world through its antenna, and sees the world through these um, multiple lenses, hears the world through its wings. I can't even remotely imagine what that experience is. Before you can call anything an object, before you say this is a chair, this is a hand, before we say that, it's an experience. Okay, so if you just replace the word object with the word experience, because you can't label an object, a chair, a hand, a body, or a skyscraper, until you experience it. Where is the experience happening? Obviously, in consciousness. Now, some people might say it's happening in the brain, but all you see in the brain is electrochemistry. How does this room fit inside your brain? If you think of a sunset or a, or a loved one and you have an experience, you see their face, you listen to a song. You know, I listened to, uh, what's his name, John Lennon, imagine I can hear the song in my head. What's happening? All that's happening is chemistry. So this is called the hard problem of consciousness, which cannot be explained by anything in the physical world. In fact, the physical world itself is an interpretation of perceptual activity in consciousness. Consciousness conceives, governs, constructs, and becomes the perceptual activity that we humans call the physical world. So we forget that matter is a human construct. Space-time is a human construct. Atoms and molecules and force fields are human constructs for modes of knowing and experience in human consciousness. If we don't understand the source of thought and yet glamorize rationality, we glamorize rationality without understanding where thought comes from. We glamorize mathematics without knowing where mathematics come from. If mathematics is a human construct and the human is a, uh, and the universe is a human construct, then that makes sense. In fact, I think scientists are threatened because they're so bamboozled by the superstition of physicality, the superstition of matter. And when you refer to it as the super superstition of matter, you're saying that what seemed to be objective realities are more likely localized patterns that are only relevant from a particular point of view. With the narrow band of perceptual activity constrained by the biological imperatives that make us a human species. Would you just give me again that cosmological information that you gave me when we met about the two trillion... Uh, well, galaxies, again, if you go on the internet and you do a search and you say how many galaxies are there in the universe, 
the current estimate is two trillion galaxies. How many stars exist in the universe? 706 trillion stars. That's 700 multiplied, followed by innumerable zeros. I don't even know how many. It'll take a lifetime to just write down the number of zeros. Uncountable trillions of planets. In fact, it's estimated that there might be 60 billion habitable planets in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, how do scientists come up with all this? Well, these days you have telescopes up in space like the James Watson Telescope, the Hubble Telescope, many others, and they look at what are called biospheres. So if a planet is too close to its sun, it's too hot, no life possible. If it's too far, too cold, no life as we know it possible. It has to fall within a certain range. And scientists call that the Goldilocks zone. So the Goldilocks zone uh, gives us an estimate of exoplanets outside the solar system that might be habitable. And current estimate is there could be 60 billion of them that are habitable for this kind of life. There might be other forms of life based on different laws of physics in different universes. And the current estimate or cosmology also says that might, there might be 10 to the power of 500 universes or infinite universes. At least that's what the physics and math suggests. Are they provable? Well, probably not because uh, even you know what we call other planets are so far away in light years, by the time light gets from there to here, our solar system may have exhausted its thermonuclear energy and burned itself up into the heat death of absolute zero. So <laughs> all this is really mysteriously unknowable, even though we can mathematically propose these ideas of infinite universes. We have no idea. 70% of the universe is dark energy, a force that is the opposite of gravity, that's ripping space apart. And the space between galaxies is moving further apart, faster than the speed of light, in violation of Einstein's theory of relativity. Galaxies are tumbling across the cosmic horizon, which is 40 billion light years or more away from where we are sitting here. Space itself is expanding. And so 70% of this is due to an invisible anti-gravity force. We have no idea what it is. That leaves 30% of the universe, which remains, of which 26% is estimated to be something called dark matter. Dark matter is so-called because it's invisible. It's invisible because it's not atomic. It doesn't reflect light, absorb light, radiate light, or have any interaction with light. So we are made of atoms. Our interactions, including on social media these days, are because of light, photons, electromagnetic activity. We cannot interact with something that's not atomic. So is dark matter unknowable? Well, scientists never give up. So they're proposing that it's made of some other particle. They call it a WIMP, weakly interactive massive particle. Has anyone seen a WIMP? No. They're looking for it, but they haven't. It's a hypothetical entity. But unless you propose dark matter, 
you can't explain the gravity in a galaxy. So without dark, dark matter, planets would spiral off and get lost in intergalactic space. Everything would fall apart, including our own physical body, and this planet would get lost in space, time. So that's 26%. That leaves 4% of the universe, which is atomic, of which 99.999% is invisible interstellar dust. Scientists believe it could be hydrogen or helium, but it's invisible. We can't see it. So the visible universe, which is 2 trillion galaxies, 700 sextillion stars, uncountable trillions of planets, where our own planet, planet Earth, would not be even a grain of sand in all the beaches of the world, all of that is 0.01%. So the atomic visible universe is 0.01%. But here's the problem. Atoms, which are made of subatomic particles, are also simultaneously waves. When they're not being observed or measured, when they're not interacting with other particles, they disappear into waves. And if you ask scientists, what are these waves made of? They'll tell you they're made of possibilities. If you say, where do these possibilities exist? Well, Hilbert space. What is Hilbert space? It's a mathematical space. Therefore, in the minds of mathematicians who understand mathematics, including all the very abstract theories of mathematics and string theories and all of this, but this space is multi-infinite. It has infinite dimensions or zero dimensions, and it manifests as this universe. So what's the universe made of? The best answer you can get is made of nothing. So that's the hard number one open question in science. What's the universe made of? And we can only say it's made of nothing. That brings us to the second question in science which currently is being asked as follows. The way it's being asked, in Science Magazine, if you look at how scientists address this, hard problem of consciousness, what's the biological basis of consciousness? How do neurochemicals in the brain, how do electrical currents called action potentials going through the five senses to your brain, how do they produce this experience of color, of form, of shape, of texture, of taste, of smell, of sensation, of thought, of feeling, of emotion, of imagination. How does chemistry do that? That's called the hard problem. And why is it the hard problem? Because we are presuming that chemistry and molecules and atoms are real. But in fact, they are human constructs for modes of knowing and experience within a narrow band of perceptual activity, the human experience. So the universe is a human construct. There's no such thing. Even the physical body is a human construct. You say, I have a physical body. Well, which one? You were a fertilized egg once, then a zygote, then an embryo, then a baby, then a toddler, then a young adult, a teenager, now this, an old man, and then gone. Okay, What is this process that we call a body? Is there such a thing? Is the body a noun or a verb? It's an activity. It's a process. So you say, I have a body. That's the first misconception. The body is not the container of awareness. Because awareness can't be contained. Awareness is also invisible. Like the fundamental universe, it's made of nothing. And awareness or consciousness being made of nothing has no borders. Therefore, it must be infinite. 
And this infinite awareness is experiencing itself in different modes of knowing and experience, which are species-specific, which are also culture-specific, which are influenced. Everything that we call reality is influenced by our conditioned mind. It's social conditioning, parental conditioning, religious conditioning, theological conditioning, philosophical conditioning, and now science, scientific conditioning. We are not seeing the world. We are dreaming an experience that we call the world and also an experience that we call the physical body. So these apparent absolutes, such as even space and time, and the laws of thermodynamics are all taking place through the prism of consciousness. And as you have just beautifully explained, that the physical world as we understand it is such a minute fraction of potential reality that we can re almost reduce what seem to be the fundaments of our physical reality to a series of superstitions or modal realities derived from conscious experience. Correct. Those realities that we call realities are models of reality. And by the way, science now concedes that science does not examine reality. It creates models of reality. And the scientific model is a very successful model. But a model of reality is not reality, just like a menu on the restaurant is not the meal. Okay, it gives this menu is the symbolic representation of the actual experience of the meal. Okay, or the map, as they say, is not the territory. If I say to you, let let's meet on Tuesday afternoon, uh, East Coast time, at the corner of Broadway and Fifty Sixth. We think that's all real, but we made it up, just like we made up Greenwich Mean Time, or we made up latitude and longitude, or we made up uh, colonial empires, or we made up money, or we made up uh, Wall Street. These are human constructs which actually govern human experience, but what we don't realize is in the same way we made up something called the human body and the universe, when all it is is a modality of experience within a narrow band of perceptual activity constrained by the limits of human biology. That's very interesting. A lot of what you say, Deepak, is mirrored in post-structural philosophy where narratives of power are scrutinized and deconstructed, recognizable as means of imposing power rather than an objective reality. I was interested to learn that there is now a field of scientific philosophy, that philosophy has once again been invited back into the... Uh, the area of the arena of science because there is now need for a kind of speculative discipline there is now a need to answer questions that are identifiably beyond the realm of material measurement yes but in the last few decades only in the last few decades have uh, a school of militant atheists who call themselves scientists uh, have become so vociferous in attacking philosophy as a legitimate discipline. So, you know, if you read some of the recent literature and science, philosophy is dismissed. And yet philosophy is based on two very important principles. One is called ontology, which is the basic 
substance of the universe, what is the ontological beingness. being, beingness, and epistemology, which means what are the limits of human knowing, and how do we know what we know. So even as we do science, even as we practice the scientific method, we never ask ourselves, who or what is it that wants to know? Is the brain a mechanical structure looking for the meaning of existence? Is a brain trying to figure out reality when the brain is part of our experience of reality? So you see, we, we are in a, in a very strange time where philosophy is having a resurgence and there's actually a whole discipline which is the philosophy of science itself. And science is based on what we call physicalism and science is a precise method of observation, experiment, theories, but they're all conceived in consciousness, by the way. Ask yourself, what came first, consciousness or science? It's obvious that you know we couldn't do science unless we were conscious beings. And in fact, special conscious beings with self-awareness and the ability to ask questions. Heisenberg, you know, one of the pioneers of quantum mechanics, he said, and I'm now uh, not quoting literally, but paraphrasing Heisenberg, he said, Nature never reveals herself to us as she is, but only as exposed to our methods of questioning. Mm. Only as, so who is it that questions? And who is it that questions? We don't question nature, we question ourselves. And then once we question ourselves, we come up with theories and ideas and experiments based on the limited perceptual experience of reality we have, and then we say this is reality. Yes. It's a model of reality. I suppose the reason that this is important, Deepak, is that the uh, conclusions derived from scientific study are used to underwrite human structures, economic structures, and power structures. And if you challenge that reality... Tenures, careers, Nobel Prizes, all this is determined... And possibly even dominion. Dominion, yes, absolutely. So, as uh, where I suppose that's why the phrase in science today is "shut up and calculate." You know, when you say, "Where do these yeah. possibilities exist in mathematical space?" Where is mathematics? Shut up and calculate. Because if you shut up and calculate, you're necessarily confined to that particular discipline. I have the image continually when you're talking of uh, uh, reality as we understand it being a kind of membrane and pushing into this membrane is a far deeper reality. We're only able to observe these uh, physical phenomena but consciousness itself seems as you say not determined by these rules but uh, only interfacing at the point of these rules. Well, the thing that I'm very curious about Deepak is the way that uh, you know I've been thinking these two questions. Is there a God and if there is a God, what uh, can we meaningfully interface with God and wh- how does that affect our systems of governance, our systems of control and our personal ethics? And given what you've said in the last 25 minutes, I imagine you have some thoughts and opinions yes, on those subjects. So God as we normally think of God, as humans normally think of God, is a human construct, just in the way gravity is, just in the way atoms and molecules are just in the way as force fields are, just in the way matter is. It's a human construct. I'm reminded of a joke where, you know, a human being ends up uh, in the gates of heaven and meets God, and they both say to each other, thank you for making me. 
So, you know, we construct God in our image. And so, as we normally think of God, I think uh, that's a human construct. Now, if we can go beyond human constructs, the fundamental religious experience, I'm not talking about religious doctrine or theology, the fundamental human experience, religious experience, in all religions, by the way, uh, if you go deep enough, the first is transcendence, which means going beyond the limitations of thought, going beyond all thought structures, transcendence, when you realize that there is an awareness and that you are that awareness that is not in space-time, that space-time, matter, energy, and everything that we call reality is actually a mode of experience in that awareness, which is not in space-time, which is prior to space-time. So that's the fundamental religious experience in every culture. Jesus Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, whatever. The second experience that is part of that experience is the emergence of what people call platonic values. Uh, truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, what people call the peace that passes understanding. That's part of that experience of transcendence. And the third aspect of that religious experience is loss of the fear of death. Because what you realize as a result of experience that birth and death are happening all the time to experience. Every perception arises, dies as soon as it's born. But you, the awareness that we call I am, is independent of that. I am is independent of I am Russell Brand or I am Deepak Chopra. I am Deepak Chopra is a localized projection of I am as a human consciousness. We are species of consciousness, just like other sentient beings are species of consciousness, experiencing their own reality. And if you trace back the source of perception, the source of knowing, the source of thought, the source of imagination, you end up with what spiritual traditions call pure consciousness, the unconditioned mind. And because the unconditioned mind is borderless, it has no limitations, it's an infinite mind with infinite possibilities of manifestation, infinite and not in space-time, eternal, Timeless. You are timeless. We are timeless beings having a time-bound experience. All four of those key principles, in a sense, allude to oneness, the first principle of transcendence beyond all separation. The, the principles, the platonic principles, joy, truth, honesty, etc., these, for me, could all be derived from an intuitive understanding that, that compassion, kindness, and love are the best demonstration of oneness, the opposite of uh, ideas of separateness, competition, aggression. Uh, the third principle, loss of fear of death, again, non-separation, oneness, no possibility of death, all things happening simultaneously because there's no such thing as time and space. These are conditions of being a human with a, limited, a limited experience of individuality. And the fourth principle, I can't remember because I went on a bit of a run with the first No, those three. are the three principles. Brilliant. Transcendence, platonic values, ethical values, or 
not imposed morality, but morality that emerges from the experience of oneness. Yes. And then loss of the fear of death, because what you realize is that what you're experiencing is a perceptual activity that is ceaseless, but the only constant factor in every perceptual activity is the presence of being, is the presence of consciousness. Yeah. So I was a child, I was a baby, I was a toddler, I am this, I'll be that. It's my destiny to play an infinity of roles, but I'm not the roles I'm playing. I'm the witnessing awareness in which all these roles are being played out simultaneously. The knower, the mode of knowing and that which is known. The observer, the mode of observation and that which is observed. The seer, the mode of seeing and the scenery are all contained in that infinite being. We are like rivulets, species of consciousness coming from an infinite beyond space-time and causality, fundamental reality. If you want, we can call it God, Ein Sof, Allah, Brahman, uh, whatever, non-local, fundamental existence, absolute being. So we are a relative being that is a rivulet or a drop in the ocean of beingness. You know, Rumi, the Sufi poet, says, you're not just a drop in the ocean, you're the mighty ocean in the drop as well. So what we call the human soul, or what some cognitive scientists today are calling a conscious agent, doesn't exist in space-time. It's part of a matrix of conscious agents participating in the creation of what we call the physical universe, but actually the physical universe is a lucid dream in a vivid now. The German philosopher, uh, Wittgenstein, he said, our life is a dream, we are asleep, but once in a while we wake up enough to know that we are dreaming. We wake up to the dreamer. The Buddha, same thing. He said, our lifetime is transient as autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. But then he saw through the dream, you know. When Buddha is dying, the famous story, Ananda says, are you God? He says, no. He says, are you a messenger? He says, no. He says, um, are you the Messiah? He says, no. He says, well, then tell me who you are. And Buddha's last words were, I'm awake. He woke up. That's what nirvana is. He woke up to the divine source which is the source of all knowing, all experience, all perception, all sensation, all images, all feelings, all thoughts. There is only God. The rest is a dream. Is the reason that I feel such fear and anxiety when I'm unable to access or sustain those states of awareness and awakeness because on some intuitive level, there is an impulse within me trying continually to return me to those states. Could psychological disorders such as anxiety, fear, depression, could addiction, or all, all these phenomena be regarded as a misinterpreted awareness that we are separate from this awakened bliss and that we are striving to return there and do not have the techniques, understanding, methods or teachers to help to deliver us there. Absolutely, absolutely. In the wisdom tradition of Vedanta, which is a non-dual tradition, 
uh, that looks at contemplative self-inquiry, transcendence, and various forms of meditation, they speak of the five kleshas, the five kleshas. Klesha is a Sanskrit word, which means human suffering. <clears throat> so we're not talking about suffering of other animals also, sentient beings suffer if you physically are cruel to them. But they don't have issues like us. You know, with, they don't have addictions, they don't have existential anxiety, they don't question the meaning of existence, uh, what is death, is there a God, what happens to us afterwards, we do. And so the Vedanta says there are five reasons we experience existential suffering, humans. First is we don't know what fundamental reality is. We think it's physical. Okay, we, we have never experienced the source of thought and emotion and feeling. I'm not talking about thought, feeling, emotion, imagination, or perceptual activity. What's the source? So we are confusing what we experience with the source of experience, number one. Number two, grasping and clinging at experience which is ungraspable. Every experience is born and dies appears and disappears as soon as it's born. If I asked you what happened to your childhood, you'd say it's gone. But if I asked you what happened to this morning, it's gone. What happened to the moment you came here, it's gone. What happens to these words by the time you hear them? They don't exist. So what are we grasping and clinging? That <clears throat> is ungraspable. So that leads to the third fear, which is the fear of impermanence which leads to a false construct called the ego, which is not yourself, but your selfie. We have sacrificed ourselves for our selfie, for our self-image, and we believe that's real, and we want to hold on to that identity, which is constantly transforming anyway. Your thoughts are transforming, your mind is evolving, your personality is evolving, your body is changing. So... The ego is a false construct, but we are holding on to it. And that leads to the fifth fear, which is the fear of death. So these are related. They're all the same fear. <clears throat> and they lead to escape mechanisms called uh, addiction. Uh, the fear of separation leads to anxiety, leads to anger and hostility, which is remembered separation, basically, which then leads to guilt, shame, because you blame yourself and ultimately leads to depression. And so I've been recently looking at the data on this meta-analysis. 99% of the human population lives low-grade anxiety and depression, and they don't know why. And they have low-grade inflammation, and it's the precursor to every chronic disease, including addictive behaviors or everything is this existential anxiety which is unsolvable through any problems, any problem or any solution that we have devised other than transcendence, other than knowing that you're not separate. Every experience you have is a perceptual activity of your own self. So when I look at an object, before I can call it an object, it's an experience in me. And then as is an experience in me, it's an activity, perceptual experience in me. And the me is not in space-time. 
I'm a formless being having the experience of form and phenomena. And when I look at form, I see it's all phenomena. There's no such thing as a form. Every form is a phenomenon, and the phenomenon is the arising and subsiding of modes of knowing and experience in consciousness. Sensations, perceptions, images, feelings, thoughts, the rest is a model. I get it. Because uh, even something as a, apparently and obviously an object such as the chairs we're sitting on will only temporarily be this chair. And if you look at them more deeply, they're molecular. Or if you look at them through, in a, through a different lens, they're made of vibration or different types of light. So we are projecting their chairness onto them. And the substance out of which this is made is not a substance. There's no physical or subtle substance that makes this or this or all of this. But we can't distill it and regard its essence because you can continue to break it down to well, the point where it's... Scientists have models. They call it the quantum vacuum. Okay, so the quantum vacuum is brimming with what we call virtual particles. Those are models. And some of these virtual particles become actual particles which construct the physical universe. The virtual particles exist in non-local, infinite, or zero dimensions as possibilities. And when they propose the Big Bang, which is a human construct, then for every billion antiparticles, there are billion and one, accidentally, billion and one particles. So this slight disproportion. The billion antiparticles and the particles collide. They annihilate each other. And the one particle extra left over becomes the physical universe. That's the current model. But what is the quantum vacuum? Where does it exist? Is it in space-time? You'll have endless arguments about this. Nobody can make up their mind what fundamental reality is, if it's physical. Because if you look at physical reality and look at physical models, Atoms or molecules become particles. Particles become waves of possibility in mathematical space. How does that become this experience? Science is unable to address that. I understand. So the narratives and teleology as science, as we understand it, was able to liberate us from a lot of ignorance and deliver us a great understanding of this bandwidth that we live in currently, how we experience reality, the conscious experience of agreed material reality. But there are limitations to these models, and a byproduct of the narrative of science was it disrupted and overthrew many uh, the uh, power structures. Religious orthodoxies were challenged. Uh, the theory of evolution made us challenge our understanding of the myths of creation. But as the journey and narrative continues, we arrive once more at this great abyss of the unknown and potentially unknowable. And this is where we once again find ourselves in a place where we th have to contemplate where is this quantum vacuum? What is behind... It's a human construct for a particular mode of knowing. Has anyone ever seen a particle? You know, you go to these big experiments done at the Hadron Collider, looking for the Higgs boson, whatever, mathematical concept. What you see is a ghost of a trail of a measurement. Who measures? What are they measuring? They're measuring an experience. And what is the experience and where is it? if not in consciousness. Where else could it be? So, you know, all our experiments are actually pointing out to a deeper mystery. Many of the spiritual traditions say all knowledge is ignorance. 
all knowledge is ignorance. Because every time you acquire some knowledge, you have to ignore the rest of reality that is hiding behind the scenes. You know, Rumi, you know, this is not the real reality. This is our shadow. In truth, we are not here. The reality is behind the veil, the, behind the screen of perceptual activity. So what we, uh, every time you know something, you have to ignore everything else. Ignorance means ignore everything in order to know something in particular. Okay. And that's what scientific inquiry is. The more you know, the bigger the unknowable and the unknown looms. So as soon as you get to the horizon, there's another horizon which is even further away. So as science advances, the unknowable and the unknown actually becomes even more mysterious. I understand as more much mysterious. as I can. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, again, I like to quote Rumi because he's one of my favorite poets. He says, um, exchange your cleverness for bewilderment. If you're not bewildered, then your humanity is incomplete. And the thing about science is it starts with a very interesting bewilderment. It starts with curiosity and wonder. And where does that come from? And then we become so sure of our models that we sacrifice the territory for a map of the territory, for a particular map, that too. Yes, Not yes. The whole map, right? Yes, yes, just as surely as a visual map would not incorporate the smells or the sounds of a territory, even just using the limited instruments of sensing that we can appreciate and understand, while recognising that there are likely whole strata of sensory information that we do not have access to because we simply don't have that language and we don't have the instruments. Thank you for listening to that lovely episode with Deepak Chopra. Remember, there's another episode with Deepak next week. Remember to let me know what you thought of it. Tag me on Instagram or, or on Twitter at Russell Brand or Rusty Rockets, respectively. In the meantime, go listen to some previous episodes. Me with a happy pair. Me with Simon Amstel. Fantastic stuff. Sign up for the email list at russellbrand.com. You'll get all sorts of crazy content there. And, um, yeah, Deepak's book, Metahuman, is out soon. And I've read some of it, and it's absolutely fantastic. You'll love it. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.